Uh, I read a story in the news a few years back about a lady who was from Ness City, Kansas, uh, about 150 miles outside of Wichita. And, And the story was really weird because it was about how she got stuck on her boyfriend's toilet for two years. I know that sounds made up, uh, but if you Google it, lady in Kansas stuck on toilet for two years, you will see like there's an LA Times story about it. It's a real story. Um, She went into the bathroom one day, she sat down, and for whatever reason, she just never got up for two years. Her boyfriend would actually bring her food and water every day in the bathroom, and he said that he tried to talk her into getting up and coming out of the bathroom. But every day she would just say, maybe tomorrow. And the story made it to the news because after two years, the boyfriend decided it was time to finally call 911. And so uh, I know this is a little graphic and I'm sorry to be so graphic, but he called 911 after he realized that she couldn't come out of the bathroom if she wanted to because her skin had grown around the toilet seat. Officials said that when they arrived that she wasn't glued to the seat, she wasn't tied in any way, she was just physically stuck to the toilet. And like the news does in all these stories, they interviewed the neighbors to get their reaction. When the neighbor heard what had happened, he said, it doesn't really surprise me. And when I read that, I was like, what? What kind of neighborhood do you live in? What has happened to you and your life and your neighborhood if it doesn't surprise you that a woman sat on her toilet so long, she became physically stuck to it? Now, honestly, I know that story is a little bit weird. It's kind of funny. It's also tragic and sad when you stop and actually think about it. But it got me thinking because I think that's a perfect picture of what happens to all of us at different times in our lives and at different areas in our lives. Because I think if we're honest, we all have an area, we all have some part of our life where we'd have to admit, maybe just a little bit, I'm, I'm stuck. Some part of our story that just keeps kind of cropping its ugly head up when we think we kind of are over it, when we think we got our arms around it, when we think we're past it, and then boom, it's right back just rearing its ugly head right in our life. Something about our current reality that's rooted in a past or a person that we used to be. Now, maybe for you, you don't feel stuck because every time we think about tackling that thing or trying to break free, like the truth is we end up like the lady in the story where we just tell ourselves, maybe tomorrow, right? Maybe you've, for you in that area, you've tried and failed so many times that you've just sort of settled, sort of resigning yourself to the fact that this is just the way it is, or this is just the way I am. And we don't like to admit it, but we often actually dream better lives than we actually end up living in real life. And I'm not talking about the places we go or the stuff we own, or, but, but, but ultimately who we become and what we live for and the mark that we leave on the world because we were alive. It's so easy to get stuck and allow our past, and allow our brokenness, and allow our mess, and our hang-ups to dictate our future. And then there are times where you do the work, and you grow, and you change, but someone who knew you back then, they still see you like you were, right? And every time you see them, all they can talk about is the person that you used to be. Have you ever felt like that no matter what you do, that your past is still gonna haunt you. Now this feels especially true in our culture where no matter who you become, 
no matter how hard you work to leave your past behind, someone could still kind of dig up your MySpace account from 14 years ago and some post that you made and use it to cancel you forever. And those of you who are too young to remember, back in the day, MySpace was like Facebook, only better. <laughs> now, for some of us, it's not that our past is that bad. It's just that it, well, it's just that boring and un- unimpressive. I mean, and, and here's the truth. It, it's, what's interesting is that even Jesus had moments where people had trouble seeing him for who he was because they knew him from before. So there's a moment in Mark chapter six when Jesus goes back to his hometown where he grew up in the area of Galilee and he starts teaching. And at first people are amazed and they're totally engaged because they, they're just blown away by what he's saying. But then someone recognizes him and they all start talking about him and his family. And then Mark says that they got offended by him when they realized who he was. And they were basically like, who does this dude think that he is? Like, we know you, Jesus. We know your family. We watched you grow up. We know your daddy is Joseph and your mama's Mary and she made up that story about being pregnant with God's child. Like, we, we know who you are. Who are you to be teaching us like this? And then Jesus makes this observation in Mark chapter six, verses four and five. He said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He, and then it says, he could not do any miracles there. And by the way, it wasn't because Jesus was somehow less there. It's that they saw him as less and they weren't open or receptive to who he was and what he wanted to do for them. And so he could not and would not do there what what he would do in other places. He was limited by what they believed. Can, Can I just tell you, like if that happened to Jesus who was God and he was perfect, it's probably gonna happen to you and me where you're gonna have somebody who's like, I know you, I know what you're about. I remember when I changed your diapers. You know, I, you're always gonna be that kid with the crooked teeth. And you know, like you're gonna have people who are like, I was there when you were, you know, drunk off your butt. Like, don't, don't come at me with this Jesus stuff. I know who you are. You're gonna have people who do that. But none of us, you know, wanna be trapped or defined by our past. But the truth is, and I'll be honest about myself, is like, I've got, I've got issues, you guys, like, and, and so do you. Like, it, it's, I, I know it's annoying when a speaker tells you to say something to the people around you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Take a moment, look at somebody near you, and just tell them, you've got issues, and so do I. Go ahead, tell them right now. You got to say both parts, though. You can't just be like, you got issues. And let's talk about them. Let's just go ahead and get this out in the open. Because none of us are perfect. And at our church, we are radically committed to this place being a place where all of us and all of our messiness and all of our scars and all of our sin and all of our brokenness can belong and actually find grace and healing. That we don't come here and we don't have to, you know, we don't pretend that we're better than we are or that we manage to be the, the somehow be the only ones in life who have everything and we got it all together. We can actually be honest about who we are and the journey we're on and where we come from. Most importantly, that we actually see each other through the lens of God's love and what's possible and who we're becoming, not how we're limited and who we were. So there's this incredible moment between Jesus and and, and a a guy in Luke chapter eight, and we're not actually even told his name, but it's a remarkable story, and it's too long for us to read the whole thing, so uh, we're just gonna kind of grab some of the highlights that's found in Luke chapter eight 
beginning with verse 22. It says this, it says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Now, because we're 21st century Americans and not first century Jews, this is a fairly innocuous statement. But for those of us who were there, or for, uh, those of us, I wasn't there. I'm not that old. <laughs> for those who were there, it was a bombshell. It was an absolute crazy idea. And, and here's why. I mean, when, context is really, really important. When you think about like when you're telling your kids about certain things, or if you actually had your kids like watch something from your childhood, and it's for you, it's awesome because it's not only rooted in a memory that you have, but there's all this context about your family and the way the world was and what people believed. And then they watch it and they're just like, this is dumb. Like what? Like it's kind of offensive because they don't have the context you have. And so if there's context that's lost between parents and children, and now we're like, there's a lot of context when we're reading this 2,000 years removed because we were not the intended audience. But the people that were reading this certainly would have known that this was a bombshell. Why would Jesus want to go to the other side? Because the other side of the lake, it wasn't just about geography. It was the other side. It, It was a technical term. The other side of the lake was considered for the Jewish people It was considered enemy territory. The people there didn't live and believe like the Jews. In fact, many of them were half Jewish, but they were also, you know, there's a lot of the Samaritans, they were also something else. And so there was a kind of a hybrid thing happened there. And so the Jewish people were were very racially biased against them, to be honest. And so to the Jews, the other side was kind of the place that, well, it was the place that Satan lived. It was dark and evil and oppressive and demonic and no one would go to the other side especially not a rabbi like Jesus and so the disciples would have been completely indignant and hesitant thinking like what is he doing doesn't he know that like God's grace and God's kingdom that they're for our side like, like it's almost as if Jesus didn't know any better it's almost as if he thought that this side and that side were both his side. It's almost as if he thought every side belonged to him and that he belonged to every side. It's almost as if he believed that all people everywhere mattered to God and that he, Jesus, came for everyone. And so I want you to know this morning, no matter what side you feel like you're on, I'm telling you that Jesus is on your side. But For the disciples, you do what the rabbi says, and so the disciples piled in a boat, and they headed for the other side. Now, as I said a second ago, the reason we're not given all that context is because the original original audience that Luke wrote all this down for, they would have just known. They would have known, inferred from the story. They would have just known all of that was baked in. The story continues in verse 26. So, So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee, and as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. So this really is the other side, you guys. Like, there's no crowds waiting for them like there was when they left. There's no fanfare. There's no buzz or chatter that Jesus is coming. Just a single crazy guy who's possessed by demons. Talk about rolling out the red carpet and the welcoming committee for Jesus. I mean, no matter... what you think of Jesus, if this is your community, the one person you hope Jesus doesn't meet ends up being the first person that he meets. 
Like, man, I hope he doesn't meet that dude, you know, Bill, because that guy is a psycho and crazy. And then Bill's like the first one to arrive on the scene. You're like, what? What's going on? It's not the first impression you'd want to make. And then it says this in verse 27. It's for, it says, speaking of that demon-possessed guy, it says, for a long time he had been homeless and naked living in the tombs outside of town. We've all been there, right, guys? Like homeless and naked living in the tombs. I mean, who hasn't? It says, then it, this spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke through them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in this part, but we can't just like gloss over. You can't read a story about a guy possessed by demons and completely ignore the demon part. Um, you know, but here's the deal. People smarter than me argue about what is actually, what the meaning of that is, that he was possessed by demons. Um, and, and, and there's all these moments in the life of Jesus where this kind of story comes up. Is this guy really possessed by something evil or did they just not have the language and the understanding for describing some sort of mental illness? Because there's, there really is more than one definition of demons, especially when we're talking about, you know, just culturally, right? One, you're talking about like one definition would be like a harmful spiritual being that drives people to do dark things. And then two would be a self-destructive kind of obsession or fear or pattern that's repeated over and over and over over time. And so, you know, that's the way we refer to it. It's like, that guy, he, he can't get over his demons. And honestly, we don't actually know, right? We, we can all speculate and postulate and what we say we believe. I actually believe that, that when I read the text, that I, I believe that it was something evil that was tormenting this guy. And I believe that because of personal experiences I've had and because I think that it's consistent with the rest of what Jesus taught and what we read in the scriptures and the context of what was happening. Jesus actually said in John chapter 10 that there is an evil one and that he hates you and his whole goal is to, to rob from you and to kill you and destroy your life. Why? Because he hates God and God loves you and so he hates you. So I, I think personally, I think that Somehow there, there was a little literal demon possession going on in this guy, but ain't nobody gonna be mad at you if you draw some other kind of conclusion. Besides, what I've discovered in my life is that I'm my biggest problem. And almost all the sabotage that happens in my life is almost always self-sabotage. We can get mad at demons or the devil or people or temptation, whatever, but almost all the sabotage that's happened in your life is well, it's on you. And that envy and jealousy and pride and gossip and anger and lust, they all just get in the way of who I wanna be and what I really wanna do. But here's what we know about this guy in the story. Whatever is going on, it had come to define his life. See, the truth is we all have a reputation, right? Things we're known for, things that come to people's minds when they think about us, ways of being and reacting and behaving, the way that we live our lives. And many times our reputation kind of boils down to just a handful of stories and a handful of labels. And so for this guy, the sum total of his life, and we don't know what it was, has been distilled down to just a few moments of his story that were given here, that he was a wild, homeless, naked, crazy man, demon-possessed, living in tombs and caves, terrorizing his community. And although all those stories about him were true, what the story in Luke doesn't tell us is how, how did he get that way? And isn't it true that it's easier to be angry about the way a person is if you just ignore 
the way they got that way. Like, like if you just don't have any of the backstory and you just, I don't care why you are that way. I just hate that you are that way. So yes, this guy is terrorizing this town, but he's also from this town. So what happened to him? Where did it all go wrong? What led him to this moment in this place? Was he abused? Was he abandoned? Where's his family? Did he, had, did, did he have friends? Where are the people who cared about him? Where are the people who still care about him? And what we see in the story is this dude is so crazy and his life is so messy that everybody else runs away from him when they see him coming, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't avoid him. Jesus moves right towards them and has compassion on them. And ultimately, he heals them. And I'm gonna, this is the part of the story I'm gonna tell you and then we're gonna read some more in just a second. Ultimately, Jesus heals him in a way that is completely supernatural and fantastical and it involves a herd of demon pigs jumping off a cliff. Again, we've all been there, guys. Uh, and, and the pigs drown in the lake. And, and even that part of the story has all this nuance and meaning and context and backstory that the people who were there and the people who would have been reading this story and what pigs represented to the Jewish people and what they represented in the Roman Empire and all this stuff that's kind of mixed in and it's baked into this story. They would have known all of that. But here's the point. Jesus meets us in the middle of our darkest and most broken moments with his grace and his compassion and I know that's not pithy, and I know it's not catchy, and I like to, you know, and, and our church, like we, when we're putting this stuff together, you know, there's a, like a, 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 you know, a term that gets tossed around with pastors, like you got to make it sticky so that when you say it, people can grab onto it, and they remember it, and they hold onto it, and I know that that's not sticky. It's just a long sentence. Like it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't have alliteration, which is like a pastor's best friend as you just start all the words of a sentence with the same letter. Um, it doesn't have any of that, but this is true, and it's powerful, and it's life-changing that Jesus meets us in the middle of our darkest and most broken moments with his grace and his compassion. This is one of the most incredible things about Jesus is that your past and your pain is, is not too big or too dirty or too nasty for God, that you're not too messed up and too broken and too sinful for Jesus. That abortion that you never told anybody about, that addiction that you hide, the pain of your divorce, the shame of the choices you've made and how they've devastated the people you love, that secret porn habit that you have that controls your mind, the cheating that nobody knows about, the rage that is always boiling right below the surface, the obsession with money and materialism, the fear that holds you hostage, the insecurity of a screwed up family and a screwed up past, the desperation of just wanting to be seen and known and loved for who who you are, or just that nagging sense that your life could be and should be more than it is right now. And I just have to tell you that Jesus is moving towards you to meet you in the middle of all of that mess and all that carnage and all the collateral damage, all that brokenness and all that pain and all that struggle to show you his love and his grace. There was a, a kid that I grew up going to church with and uh, he was an amazing, amazing kid, one of my best friends. As we got into adulthood, um, he, he loved Jesus. We got into adulthood, and we kind of lost touch for a little while, and we would meet up and see each other <clears throat> every once in a while. He became a cop, and, um, and sometimes we'd meet up at Disneyland, and, you know, or we'd have dinner or whatever. And um, 
but he, he kind of lost a sense of who he was. And so he started doing some really dark things, criminal things while he was at work. And so he actually got into a habit where he would um, find women who were working the street and he would go to threaten to bust them unless they would do some stuff for him. And so it took a while, but an undercover sting that went on for about eight months, he got caught up in. He got arrested, lost his job, lost his family. The judge in the courtroom said, I'm going to make an example of you. You were a cop. You had authority and power that you abused. And so for the crimes he committed, he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. He's currently, he's been down about 10 years. He's currently serving out that life sentence at San Quentin in Northern California. I talk to him about once a week. He calls me all the time. Here's the beautiful part of this story. He got lost when he went to prison. Jesus found him again. And I, I can't explain it. When he calls me, he's a different person. When he calls me, he, he hasn't talked to his wife and kids in several years, and that's heartbreaking, and I don't bring it up because it just is so painful for him. But I have to tell you that God found him in the middle of, of the California state prison system and brought grace and love and mercy into his cell. And his life is completely different. See, those, those stories about you may be true. They may be part of your story, but they don't, they don't get to define you. Who Jesus says you are defines you. We're so good at covering our tracks, at pretending and hiding the dark part of ourselves and our stories. We're so good of knowing, at knowing what's socially acceptable. And so we just kind of cover over the rest of it. We're so good. Most of us go through life feeling like if people saw us, the real us, that they'd avoid us and run away. But I want you to know that God actually does see you, that he loves you and he's not scared, that he sees all the parts that you cover up, that Jesus came for broken and messy people because that's the only kind there is. So Jesus heals this guy. And this is what happens after, verse 35. People from the community, from the town, they rush out to see what had happened. Now a crowd is gathering around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons, and he was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. And those that had seen what had happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed and about the demon pigs. They, They told them about that part. And it says, all the people of the region begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone for a great wave of fear swept over them. So the crowd rushes out to see what happened. They see the guy and they were 
shockingly, they were okay with him when he was naked and homeless and crazy and living in the tombs. But now that he's sane and clothed and hanging out with Jesus, they're like, whoa, I don't know if I want to get around that. They don't respond to the miracle like those people, like the Jews would in Galilee or Jerusalem. They don't start bringing Jesus, their sick kids and their crippled friends, and they don't start bringing people out so that he can heal them. Nope. Luke says that a wave of fear swept over the crowd, and now they're begging him. They're just begging him to go. Just please leave. Why? And why? Why would they do that? Because clearly he had power, and he wasn't one of them. He was from the wrong side, and who knows how he'll use that power against them. And quite frankly, what happened for them was pretty costly. I mean, like, why should we have to pay for this guy's freedom with our herd of pigs? Give us our pigs back. We'd rather have our pigs back and this dude be naked and homeless. I mean, that's nice and all that he's healed, but now we're just supposed to act like everything's normal? Like the other day you were running by my house naked, dude. Now we're just going to hang out? I don't think so. So they asked Jesus to leave. And so Jesus leaves. Then something curious happens. I know the whole story has been very curious, but something really interesting happens when Jesus goes to leave in verse 38. It says, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the guy begs Jesus to go with him. And I think part of the reason why he's thinking that is like, Jesus, you don't understand these people... Like, I've been running around here naked, man. I don't want to have to look these people in the eye. Like, these people don't like me. There's obviously history here. I haven't exactly been the best citizen in this community. I mean, I was possessed, but it was still me. And I've changed, but they don't want to hear it. They're never going to let me be different here, Jesus. I'm always going to be the crazy guy that was living in the tombs. See, here's the beautiful part about God's grace is that grace doesn't just release us from our past. It overcomes it. It, it, It's not just for forgiveness for what we did and who we were, and then we just kind of get to ignore or pretend that none of that back there happened. No, grace actually means that we can be at peace with God, but also we can make peace with our story and the people who are in it. And that's the uncomfortable part, right? It's possible that someone or a group of people in the town had a hand in what had happened to this guy, and in turn, he'd been torturing them for all these years, and now they got to circle back. He's got to circle back to them. That definitely would have been tense and awkward, but the, the dynamics you know, would have been really, really difficult, so naturally, he wants to leave and go with Jesus, but, but Jesus, who up until now had been telling everyone, stop what you're doing, drop your life and follow me. And this guy's like, I'll stop what I'm doing, drop my life and follow you. And Jesus is like, nope, you need to go back and tell everybody what God has done for you. He tells them to go home and tell your story. Go home and make peace with the people in your story. Imagine this guy's feeling when the boat rows away. and He's like standing there by himself on the shore watching them row away and he's not in it. And he can just feel the crowd of people behind him that he knows. See, we, we always want to separate what happens between us and God from what happens between us and other people. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't let us do that. He, he didn't send them back to just go figure it out. God knows the most powerful thing for this guy is for him to face 
his past. And the most powerful thing for the people in this village is for them, for them to see this guy living every single day fully changed and fully healed. And it's no different from you and I. That, that grace isn't just so we can start fresh, but it's so that we can be reconciled with our own story and we can be, make peace with the people in our past. Verse 39, it says, So the man went away, and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So the guy does what Jesus says. This is they all, you know, they all heard the story that God loved and cared about someone on their side. See, I don't know your story, but chances are you haven't spent time as a homeless, naked, demon-possessed guy living in tombs. I'm pretty sure we don't have any of those people that attend our church, at least not yet. But what I love is that the story is a declaration that whatever pain and darkness you find yourself in, whatever pain and darkness you've been through, whatever pain and darkness you dabbled your life in, however messy and ugly your life has been or is currently, your past, your life, your present, that grace is greater than all of it. All that stuff that you just, all that stuff that you're trying to control and get your arms around and just hold down and press back. And the, the Apostle Paul actually draws this picture in one of his writings that, that our nature and our story and the mess we've been through and sin, that it's like a runaway freight train and we're just trying to slow it down as much as we can, but we are powerless to do that. But grace is greater. Watch what happens in the place where this guy was living. Because a short time later, Jesus actually returns to this exact same spot, only this time it was way different. In Mark chapter six, verses 53 through 56, it says this. It says, when they had crossed over to the other side, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there, which is exactly where they went before. Verse 54, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus and they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him to let them touch the edge, even the edge of his cloak. And all who were touched it, all who touched it were healed. Just a short while ago, they were begging him to leave. Now he shows up and they're begging him to stay and to heal. Why? How did that happen? Because grace transformed one man's broken, sordid past into a powerful message of God's love and hope. That, that's who Jesus is. That's what grace does. Because our stories are bigger than just us. See, what if the parts that you want to keep hidden are actually the parts that God is wanting to use to give people around you hope? What if the darkness and the messiness and the stuff that you're just kind of afraid to share and then it's embarrassing, and we all have that junk. But I'm telling you, God wants to step into the middle of all of that and bring and invite you into his grace land where you don't have to hide any of that and that grace is actually making peace with that part of your life and with the people that that involves. See, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus and you're going, man, that, like, I've been down that road and that is true and that's been my journey, but I just want to tell you, like, God actually wants to leverage the grace that you've experienced to change your family and your neighborhood and the people that live around you and the people that you work with. This whole region was transformed because one guy just went and told 
his story about what God had done for him. Can you imagine if just a handful of us started just telling the story of what God had done for us? I think eventually we'd actually start to see a similar experience unfold. So no matter what you've been through, God's grace is greater. That, that is, that's who Jesus was. That is the story of the cross, of God's redemption of you and of me. Let's pray together.